0: Welcome, everyone, to the Wild Truth Chase podcast. I'm here with my co host Neeraj, and I'm Nick. How did I do with varying that intro? You did really well on the fly. There were some small
1: modifications, which I did not expect, actually. It did catch me by surprise. So I'm going to give that a solid 6.5 out of 10. Excellent. What are we doing here? Uh, We are talking about finance. In particular, we're talking about Silicon Valley Bank. It's season five, and that's the subject. And we're on episode four where we're going to dig into their balance sheets. But before we do that, I thought it'd be worth recapping last week's episode and anything that came out of that.
0: Yeah. We were talking last week about as a sort of auxiliary subject of conversation, large language models and chat GPT is a theme that's lurking underneath the surface of our discussions a lot recently. And ChatGPT is an example of a large language model. So I put it to our audience Have you used an LM, which is short for large language model, to do anything? And there were three options yes, but nothing useful. Yes, and it was useful. And no, those were the three options.
1: And the results well, the results were 100% no, people have not used an LM to do anything. Um, yeah yeah there's obviously a wider range of answers out there because i know nick you've been qu- using it quite a lot part of me does wish that you'd ask the question about which was the better episode description last week the human written one or the one written by a i'm not sure if it's a large language model by some form of ai um, yeah,
0: so yeah i think it is we started tacking on ai summaries and timestamps and that same tool actually provides an entire transcript but when i tried to publish the transcript, with it, Spotify or Anchor refused to to publish it because it was too long. So I don't know what that's about. I know that people do publish transcripts, but maybe it's always on a separate site, not in the show notes.
1: I, I've seen it on separate sites as well, but I think just the timestamp information is useful. You could probably throw away the description, though, as from what I. <laughs> <laughs> You're voting for yourself. I, I am voting for myself, Nick. Uh, okay. Yeah, it, it seems to be a common thing I do sometimes.
0: <laughs> we we also had some information sent in by a listener. One of the subjects we were covering last time was the number of bank failures over time. And we were noting that there were three clusters of bank failures in the recent history of the United States, one following the Great Depression, another in the 80s and 90s, and then some recently. One thought that occurred to us that we didn't have the information for at the time was how does the total number of banks change because all other things equal, you'd expect the total number of bank failures to be proportional to the total number of banks, maybe naively. And we got some information sent in to us. Do you want to describe what that was? Yeah. So it's the
1: total number of banks in the US by decade, essentially. So 1920, 1930, 1940, 1950, all the way down to present day, and what is pretty stark in that is that the total number of banks have been fallen since 1920. Actually, just looking at the data, I can only see one, one decade in which the total number of banks in the U.S. increased, which was from 1960 to 1970, where they went from 13,100 to 13,500. But, oh, and then the decade after as well, 1970 to 1980, where they went from 1,500 to 14,400. But I guess apart from that, they all look like it's been a story of fewer and fewer banks.
0: Yeah. And from 1920 to 2020, you've got a drop from 31,000 down to 4,300. So yeah. quite a significant drop in the number of banks in the last hundred years. I do wonder like how many
1: banks are opening versus how many banks are closing. At least over here in the UK, we've had a few new sort of challenger banks that have opened recently, but I don't know what the market's like in the U S and that sort of yeah,
0: thing. I would imagine it's similar. Yeah, that's right. Because if you have a lot of banks coming into and going out of existence, that's another way to have a large number of bank failures.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it was interesting because in the bank failure information last week, we looked at, there was, I think, a median of two two banks failing every quarter and one, or the 25th percentile was one bank, but there's still quite a lot of banks there. So I would say your odds are pretty good still of not having your money in a bank that's about to fail in the next quarter. What new analysis did we do this week? In last week's episode, I did mention that I would like to get deeper into the balance sheet information because I feel like that's where some of the gremlins were hidden. And in understanding what happened to Silicon Valley Bank, this was a whole mess of trying to figure out data and financial data and taxonomies and GAR, which I can't remember exactly what general accounting something or another. You really value the <laughs> value having a domain expert then in moments like this. That was, yeah, I was digging into the balance sheet information. And Nick, you were off on a different type of journey.
0: Yeah, but related, we took a couple different approaches to this sort of same question of analyzing the balance sheets. Yours was really focused on the data you obtained directly from the Silicon Valley Bank website. And yep. that's nice because it has very detailed information about the balance sheets and the different types of things on the balance sheets. And also, it was easier in the end for you to make sense of that data as opposed to the data that I was looking at, which was scraped en masse a a service called Alpha Vantage, which provides a lot of different financial information. I think people use it a lot for analyzing stock prices. And they also have information on banks, including balance sheet information. And what's nice about that is that although it doesn't provide as much detail, you can get the information for many different banks in more or less the same format and not have to do too much data cleaning to get a sort of overall picture of the bank's balance sheet. So those are the two approaches that we took.
1: Yeah, and it was pretty I would say the sort of thing we found in looking at the balance sheet did support just the general wider hypothesis in terms of what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. I guess other people have done analysis and looked into what happened. So it's just nice to see that we're not necessarily finding anything particularly different here. But what I did was, and you'll find the plots on our reports, and you can find links in the episode descriptions as always. But yeah, I was looking at the last 10 years of balance sheet information, and the main thing at least from the assets, the total assets of the bank perspective that stood out was over the last 10 years, there's been a pretty big shift in the ratio of available for sale securities and held till mature securities. I think that's probably the biggest shift that we're seeing. The other things, there's slight changes here and there, but I will not say that they're huge, but this was actually quite a significant shift. So back in 2012, roughly about 40%, maybe 45% of Silicon Valley banks Assets were in available for sale securities, but that had changed to, I think maybe about 15% by 2022 and about 30% of held to mature securities. So basically, if you can't see the plot, it's just a big shift. And then now they now have a bigger amount of held to mature. So
0: this, as you were saying, goes along with the general narrative that if you have a lot of your assets in held to maturity securities that aren't available to sell right away and people start coming, asking for money that's harder to convert into cash. And you may have to take a hit in order to convert it into cash. And you may therefore run out of cash as people come to you and ask for it.
1: Exactly. And in terms of the liabilities, I think there were some shifts in terms of interest-bearing deposits, non-interest-bearing demand deposits. But again, I wouldn't say that necessarily these were massively contributing factors. But if anyone anyone thinks that there were or holds different opinions, Definitely value some feedback, especially about understanding financial terminology and making sure that the interpretation is correct.
0: Awesome. So what I wanted to do is for people who are not already experts in in analyzing this, the absolute numbers, if you had told me without any other context, that the percent of held to maturity securities of Silicon Valley Bank in 2022 was 40%. Um, those numbers don't mean too much to me because I don't have much context because I don't have much experience in order to try to supplement that. What I try to do is to gather information on a whole bunch of banks and then compute some metrics and make some visualizations that allow you to directly compare Silicon Valley bank to a bunch of other banks. And as I mentioned previously, I went on to the alpha vantage site and they have an API where you can collect data on banks. I actually asked ChatGBT to just give me a big, long list of banks. So that's where the list of banks came from. Thankfully it included a Silicon Valley bank. And the first thing I did was just to plot one of the supposedly key metrics over time for a whole bunch of the banks. And this is the capital adequacy ratio. Essentially it's a measure of how much your, the amount by which
1: your assets exceeds your liabilities.
0: Yeah, it reflects that, right? It's how much money you're keeping on hand as a fraction of your total assets. Yep. Yeah. And so I think there, there are regulations subject to a minimum capital adequacy ratio, such that in normal times, at least, if there's a small fluctuation in the number of people coming to ask for money, you can easily meet those demands. And so these numbers, which are the third plot in the report, if you go to it, range from 5% to 25%, roughly, with the bulk of the banks having a capital adequacy ratio of maybe around 10% over time. And overall, there's a little bit of a drift, maybe a decrease over time from 2018 to 2023, which is when the data is available. And I guess what sticks out in the plot is that the Silicon Valley Bank. Is not the lowest at every time point, but it's on the low end, certainly. And last week, I looked at some of the other banks that were lower, and I'm not sure if they're included in this version of the analysis, but a bunch of the banks that were ending up lower were all Canadian banks. And so I assume that this is due to some kind of difference in the regulation or the way that the investments are handled in Canadian banks. But certainly, you know, Silicon Valley Bank has a low capital adequacy ratio, and it decreases markedly in 2020, from roughly Q1 to Q2 of 2020 to 2021, there's a decrease. It's already on the low end and it decreases from about 10% to 6 or 7% and then holds steady there until 2023.
1: Yeah, I think that decrease is also seen as a, a- a bit of an industry-wide decrease as well during the pandemic. So I don't know necessarily what the collective thinking was in that, or if there was a cause for that. But yeah, there there definitely is just a general industry-wide one. But as you say, Silicon Valley Bank is always towards the lower side. In
0: 2023, though, when the data available ends, there are a number of banks. Here, I'm just looking at a few of them. Key Corp, Ally, Bank United, Comerica, Cullen, Bank of Hawaii, Zions, Bank Corp, that have quite low capital adequacy ratios in 2023. And so it'd be interesting to look to see if there's any thought that those banks might be in trouble. I wonder, um, now when I lived in America,
1: I didn't really know many more banks than Bank of America, Wells Fargo, or any of
0: the big ones. Are you aware of any sort of local banks around you? Yeah. Now, especially with the banking crisis, the, there's more awareness around regional banks and whether or not they're healthy, but I, I probably couldn't name any off the top of my head. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I've always been struck by the agriculture banks. They seem to have been around for a while and not just relate. I've seen them in other countries that aren't just the U.S. So I wonder why agriculture banks are a thing of their own. But yeah, that definitely, I think they definitely have some of those in the U.S. as well.
0: Yeah. My understanding is that like other businesses, it pays to know your customer. Mm -hmm. And so people will, like we talked about with Silicon Valley Bank being mostly used by companies that are accessing venture capital you have a specialty and you get good at serving those customers and knowing what their needs are. So that could be a reason why agricultural banks are a particular thing. One day I'd like to be a niche customer. I think
1: that would be fun. And then you, you went on from there and you were, as you mentioned, you were looking for reference points for, to help you understand how exceptional was the Silicon Valley position. And you did some cool dimensionality reduction, animation style stuff. Do you want to take us through that?
0: Yeah, sure. And again, admittedly, this is coming from a place of ignorance, right? So this is something that my PhD advisor used to say, which is, he didn't, this is not a direct quote, but it's something to the effect. If you don't know anything, then just do machine learning. So that, that's basically the approach that I took here. So the balance sheet information that comes from the AlphaVantage API has a number of different columns, total assets, total liabilities, and a bunch of other stuff. And so what I did is to get the balance sheet information for all of the banks. And then just did a very light data cleaning where I just tried to eliminate columns that had too much missing information. So any column that across all the banks had more than 10% missing information, I got rid of those columns. And then basically what I did is to do a, as you say, a dimension reduction technique. So even after I got rid of those columns, there are still on the order of 20 columns left. And so you can think of Those 20 values for a particular bank at a particular point in time as being a kind of feature vector or some kind of numerical descriptor for the state of the balance sheet of the bank. And so, if it's 20 dimensional, it's hard to make sense of that directly. If you just look at all those numbers, it's going to be overwhelming. And if you try to plot it, you'll find that it's not easy to plot either because typically plots are two or three dimensional. And so, this dimension reduction techniques are ways to try to take that kind of high dimensional data and reduce the number of dimensions while preserving as much information as possible. And there are a whole bunch of ways to do this. Probably most popular way is something called principal component analysis. There's another one that I use called TSNE, or TISNE analysis. And uh, dimension reduction is just a very general technique that allows you to conveniently visualize high dimensional data in in such a way that hopefully some of the relevant information And so just to set up like what the animation is, we have this kind of feature vector for a bunch of different banks at a bunch of different time points between 2018 and 2023 at a quarterly frequency. And so what we first do is we take the whole 20 dimensional data and we do a dimension reduction down to two dimensions. And then that gives you basically an X and Y coordinate to put a point. And then we plot each bank. At a particular time slice as a point on the plot. And then the animation over time basically plots those points for each time point. And so there's a slider on the bottom that you can drag to different points in time. And you can see that basically what happens is that the little points corresponding to banks move around as their balance sheet changes. And because we were particularly interested in the Silicon Valley bank, what I did is to make that dot on every snapshot of the plot a little bit bigger than the rest so it's easier to, easy to see where it is on each of the time slices
1: yeah so so it's a really cool plot where you can you're actually getting a lot of information but in quite a condensed format and the coolest thing for me was just seeing how these dots were moving around over time and the different sort of patterns that you have and how things are located and which things are close to each other and which things aren't cuz the, on the plot, depending on if two points are close together, the essentially it means that they have very similar balance sheet information, I would say. That's what you can infer from that. Do you want to talk about the other years first, Nick, and then we can talk about the end of 2022?
0: Yeah, I think if we start, let's say somewhere in 2019, and as you said, the most important aspect of the plot is not the absolute location of the points. That's somewhat arbitrary or entirely arbitrary. But which dots are close to which other dots is what's meaningful in this plot. And just back in 2019, if you just take a lay of the land, there's a whole like smear of points in the bottom part of the plot. And then separated from everything else is a group of banks, which the names will perhaps not be surprising. So it's Citigroup, Bank of America, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley, all the largest banks in the U.S., are off in their own, hanging out in the top of the plot. And then the bottom of the plot is much more scattered. And back in 2019, Silicon Valley Bank is on the right side of the plot, and it's hanging out next to New York Community Bank and Comerica Bank. And then
1: as we move forward, I think, so not much changes, I would say, up until we hit about 2020. And then Silicon Valley Bank really goes uh, for a wonder, Off in different places. So
0: it's in the earlier years, it's hanging out near the x-axis in the first quadrant.
1: Yeah. And And then then, suddenly drops into the low right quadrant.
0: Yeah, exactly. As you go from 2020 to 2021, it really starts moving. And ends up in the the middle of the second quadrant, if I remember my elementary school quadrants correctly.'ve which is to... as you said, the yeah. bottom right quadrant. Yeah, the
1: bottom yeah. And then as we get closer to 2023, it still has other points around it. that doesn't look too exceptional that it still has some friends in 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 this particular space that we're looking at here. But as we get closer to the end of 2022, All the other points are scattering and running away from it, which kind of tells you that maybe they're trying to do something differently than Silicon Valley Bank.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It seems we're to totally overinterpret this. It's Silicon Valley Bank was maybe in a decent place before 2020, and then it moved into a kind of danger zone, which perhaps it's the, the macroeconomic climate that makes this region of the plot dangerous. And so, if you move forward, other banks do things to get out of that region and Silicon Valley bank is left by itself there waiting to get, uh, to get crushed.
1: That's right. Cause it, by the end it's right in the middle of that lower quadrant all by itself. All by its lonesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I think takeaways, I would say were that a change in uh, available at hand securities and held to maturity securities, which happened sometime around 2020. So 2020 seems to have been a key date for Silicon Valley Bank. It's always been running low on the car. The capital ad- adequacy ratio is one. It's always been one of the lower banks. And again, I think the animation shows that in around 2020, when it jumps into this lower right quadrant, it is maybe setting itself up for the failure that was to come.
0: Yeah. So I think this has been really fun. It would be nice now to... I don't know what we want to do next, but it would be nice to bring together a couple of the things that we looked at. I think there were not many banks that failed in the U.S. during this time period that's available from the Alpha Vantage API. But if there were any others that failed, that would be interesting to look at. And then also some of the, be interesting to look at some of the macroeconomic indicators and how they changed around the same time that we saw this dramatic shift in the balance sheet of Silicon Valley Bank.
1: Yeah, I think the macroeconomic indicators would be interesting. Maybe, maybe it's something we can return to, say, a year from now. Maybe it's a re- an analysis we can repeat to see how banks changed. Because I don't know how much time they've had to react to the macro. So Silicon Valley Bank didn't have enough time to react to the macroeconomic indicators. But how would they change their operations? And which ones are changing in similar ways? So that might be a an interesting thing to do in the future.
0: Nice. And as always, if you're interested, we will take the code that's behind the notebook and post it on GitHub so you can take a look at it. Unfortunately, the uh, data that went into my part of the analysis doesn't belong to us, so we can't post it, but there is a free version of the Alpha Vantage API, so you can get the data there by yourself if you're interested in digging into it.
1: Cool. Nice one. And good stuff, Nick. I like the plots there.
0: Yeah, likewise. I think that I'm glad you're able to do the detailed analysis of the Silicon Valley bank sheets, because I think one without the other wouldn't have much meaning, right? If you just had the kind of generic machine learning analysis, you wouldn't know what's causing what. And on the other hand, like just the single bank analysis lacks some context about what other banks are doing. So
1: yeah, yeah. Agreed. Super. I think that's it for today. Thanks for joining. And Nick, I'll catch you next week. Okay. Thanks, Nirish.
0: Bye, everybody.